Yesterday was the spring equinox and from now on it gets lighter longer every day. This weekend the clocks go forward and in addition we get an extra hours daylight in the evening. This coming week was the one a team of 10 Bamaha regulars usually went to Loch Corrib in the Republic of Ireland for the early duck fly hatches. These were the first real fly hatches of the year and brought up some of the better class of trout between 3 and 10 pounds at a time when Scotland was barely out of winter and with little green growth, Ireland seemed to be at least a fortnight ahead and with masses of green in comparison. And while wild trout fly fishing here we would be chasing lean and scrawny three-quarter punters there at Corrib we were chasing fat three punters and the occasional big leopard. For just over a decade starting around 1990 we made the annual Loch Corrib pilgrimage still in the days of the Troubles, before the euro when the currency was the pun and even before mobile phones. We fished various locations from Kong to Otterard to Cornamona always prospecting, always searching and learning while looking for the ideal location for a permanent base. And with five boats of prospectors traveling in different directions every day we weren't long in sniffing out the good and discarding the rest. Davy, Gus, myself, Alistair, Alex, Big Stewart, Rab, Mark, Dennis, Brian and Frank were all Bamaha regulars at the time, and we all got together to follow our need for catching big trout on the fly rod. It was by invitation only and once in it was dead man's shoes. The anticipation started around Christmas when we all met for an orders group. Vans were booked, houses booked, insurance arranged, boats booked, deposits taken, money discussed and secret flies glimpsed. Everyone had a job, from the professional van driver, the van loader, the music provider, the grub man, a butcher, to the cook and cleaner. As most lived or worked around Paisley area we met on the appointed day at the old Tottenham Inn, the infamous Toddy, when the lucky ten were dropped off in the car park each with a mountain of gear, outboards, rods, boat seats and secret contraband. While most got on with the serious business of getting the first of many beers down their necks, the driver, loader and occasional observer making sure all his own stuff went on got on with the annual miracle of getting five outboard engines, five landing nets, ten cross seats, thirty-odd assorted fly rods, gear for ten anglers, ten pairs of wellies, ten fishing jackets, fuel, clothes bags, etc., and still leave enough space for ten sometimes hefty anglers with enough mobile beer aboard to drown an elephant. We rarely got much past Fennec on the old A-77 before the first P-stop was desperately demanded, usually by Gus. The van, usually a 15-seat double-wheel base transit, was fitted with a full roof rack with rear ladder. Up there went all nets, fly boards, clothes bags, rods in tubes, gear tubs, etc. all covered with a hap and held down with countless bungees. The last two rear rows of seats in the van also were packed with gear. Engines went in from the back with power heads out and props under seats. Everything went in with a bit of crushing and last in were the bodies, three sensible ones up front and the rest of the beer drinkers in the back for a kip. The departure was usually time to get the overnight ferry from Cairnrian to Belfast which meant we could drive through the night darkness on quiet roads through the border at Enniskillen and arrive early enough at the destination to get the house opened up, the van unloaded, a bit of brakey, geared up, tackled up and on the lock before midday. Five boats were waiting at the jetty beside the five double room house, usually a motley assortment of craft. Being boat fishing experts we'd all already decided the qualities of each boat from afar and selected those we didn't want. But it was down to the draw and this was carried out with all the importance of the lottery. The boat you got was yours for the week and all engines seats etc. stayed on it until the last day. So the last pick could mean a week of drifting everywhere backwards and getting one of the first three picks in the draw was critical. Tradition called for the winners of the previous season's competition to present a we welcome speech and christen the boats with a dram or two before the first boat left the jetty. Then came the starburst. Months of anticipation, of planning of tactics, locations, first drifts and pent-up enthusiasm was here at last and it was time to start. 
Weather was critical and at that time of year could be anything from flat calm freezing overnight highs to raging gale super lows lasting for the week. Over the 10 years we spent there we had it all, but over time gradually whittled down the areas most likely to provide sport because they had sheltered areas fishable no matter the wind directions. The preferred location we settled on was the Doris Peninsula close to Cornamona. In addition to the fishing being varied and sometimes superb it had good accommodation, pubs close by, a shop, and was close enough to Con where we could get a passable chippy, petrol, and a pub with some nightlife. Danigers had decent grub, good beer and a bit of life at weekends. We became well known and made many local friends who knew we were there to fish, spend and enjoy ourselves without causing any trouble. Mostly. Our annual arrival dumped masses of cash into the local economy just at the time it was most needed. Most areas were glad to have the business generated by our need for accommodation, boats, fuel, food, beers and entertainment. It must have been worth about 10k minimum per trip, all paid in cash. That's a lot of cash over a decade. Once there there were a few rules. No fisticuffs within the group or you wouldn't be back. Everyone had a turn at cooking breakfast, washing dishes, shopping for the house for bread, milk etc., and keeping the place clean. Not easy with 10 obsessed anglers only concerned with not missing a minute when conditions put the fish on the rise and the big boys came out like mackerel. And the only unbreakable rule was that you must go to the pub every night regardless of how bad the day had been, or how good. That way no one sulked after getting their s kicked in those who'd caught shared locations, flies, and enthusiasm to get the defeated back up. Plus the kitty rode every night and if you didn't go others drank your share with no refund. As I said we were mostly paisley men and the thought of that irrecoverable loss meant few ever missed the pub. Rods and expensive movable gear were taken off the boats each night and kept in the double garage fully made up, cast connected and ready to go the next day. Every morning the garage was like an army laundry with 10 sets of usually soaking wet gear, stinking socks and wellies, roughly 20 made-up rods and 10 big white tubs with sealing lids we all used instead of fishing bags because they were 100% waterproof especially when they were floating in a boat half filled with rainwater, spray and sometimes tears. There were some dark and shameful deeds went on in that garage most days. Successful flies were craftily snipped off leaders, whole casts disappeared, fly boxes were stripped in seconds with the owner's back turned, chocolate hordes disappeared, and sometimes worse. It was serious stuff because there was a competition for the heaviest trout caught, the heaviest day basket by one angler and the overall boat championship for the best total catch by weight over the week. That last accolade was the one every boat wanted and the official weigh-in after every day was keenly watched as every last ounce counted. Only one official set of scales was used, no fish under 1 pound 4 ounces counted and the weigh-in was the last thing that was done each day before the pub run. The pub was alternately the savior and the killer. By the end of the week supplies in the house were usually getting slim. Most decided to get fish suppers on the way home from the pub because they'd been out all day with little to eat and were starving. But four or more pints of Guinness or Smithwicks on an empty stomach made for some memorable culinary events. The back of the van in the morning often looked like cannibals had been visiting overnight with bones and skin everywhere and the smell across between a fishmonger's, a battery hen house and a landfill site. We aimed to be self-sufficient during the day and all boats carried a stove, Dixie's, kettle, and enough tin food to survive. This was classed as contraband, and all had to be accommodated in personal clothes bags. So a decision had to be made as to a regular change of shirt or a few extra tins, or bars of chocolate. By Wednesday it was easy to discern those who'd opted for extra grub. Most lived for a week on M and S tin chicken curry, chili, stewed steak, tinned rice and local soda bread. And beer and an occasional trout or two. It was invariably a hard week. Corb trout didn't give themselves up easily and every one had to be earned twice over. 
A special day to remember might mean three or four fish to the boat up to about five pounds-ish. Often though it meant a blank. At the end of most weeks the result of the best boat competition was still depending on the last day catch. Boats then stayed out right till the last gasp, and then the whole carnival had to be packed in the van for the trip home. Again this was time to be an overnight journey with plenty of time in the boozers before piling aboard at closing time half cut and half asleep. The object was to get the head down and get a few hours before the ferry journey to Stranraer. And on here the restaurant was usually the first chance to get a decent hot meal that wasn't a fish supper, and on a real plate instead of scraped out of a Dixie. But some out of habit still just made straight for the bar again. Back at the toddy the van was unloaded and wives, sweethearts, etc., arrived en masse to collect their respective charges. There were some horrific sights witnessed staggering out of that van on arrival. The journey home had already been occupied by making of plans for the following year. Maybe a better house had been sussed out, better boats, more productive areas discussed, who was in again and who was out. And then the long wait started again and provided a ready-made talking point over any Loman drum-up fire throughout the season. In part 2 I'll reveal the fishing, tactics, successes and disasters.